Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steine. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. In this episode, I have been talking to amazing Australian percussionist Vanessa Tomlinson, a percussive artist dedicated to exploring how sounds shape our lives, awakening our ears to new sounds in new spaces, with the hope that attentive listening will lead to attentive custodianship of place. We cover some questions on artistic research, collaborations with improvisers and dancers, and even her learnings from Sihuan Opera and Australian improvisation. So, hello, Vanessa, and welcome to Percussion Perspectives. Thanks for having me here today. Great. And uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your career, where you are right now, and how you came there? My goodness. Um, well, I turned 50 last year, so that means there's a long backstory to get to today. But the very simple version is I've been um, head of percussion at the Queensland Conservatorium Griffith University for the last 18 years, um, running that studio and running um, the percussion group Butter Boom Percussion, which is the student group. Um, I've been running a professional group, Early Warning System. I've been working with my percussion piano-led duo, um, Clocked Out, who make big scale projects. I've been composing, improvising. I'm artistic director of a couple of festivals. Um, and that's sort of the careery part. But to get there is always, you know, a step-by-step -step journey. It doesn't just happen. I'm from Adelaide in South Australia, which is down the bottom of Australia. And I studied piano, violin, percussion, went through uni, worked with the Adelaide Symphony, and then one day, one magical day, um, I went to a concert at a little hall at the back of the main um, music school and about seven people showed up and the guest was Steve Schick. This mm. is in 1990 and I was one of those seven people and I was like gobsmacked that that was percussion. I'd been studying something that apparently was quite different to that. Um, and I was really, really excited and amazed by what could be called percussion. And so we kept in touch and he said, well, why don't you come and study with me? And I thought, well, that's a great idea. I've never really left Australia, but why not go to California and go to San Diego? And that really opened a lot of windows, not just in percussion, but um, at UC San Diego, George Lewis was there at the time. Brian Fernihow was there, Miller Puckett. Um, all of these people that have just been huge innovators um, in the world of music. So my mind was uh, blown multiple times <laughs> during that era. Um, it was also blown because they had this incredible library, which just had recordings and scores and books. And I didn't, I'm a bit of a person who likes to just sort of sit in a corner and listen to music for hours or read books for hours. So It was just so nice to have access to all of that stuff, like scores that people had heard about, um, you know, I'd heard of Stockhausen and heard of his music, but I'd never sat down with those tangible, beautiful, oversized, crazy scores and tried to work out what they meant. 
I'd never sat down with, you know, big Zanaka scores and tried to work those out. So uh, it was just a fascinating time. Um, I moved from there back to Melbourne in Australia, just trying to work out, well, how do I apply these ideas in what I see as a real world setting outside the university? Like, who cares? Like, mm. Great. I've got this knowledge, but, you know, it doesn't mean anything. So I was really into trying to apply that. And to do that, I had to sort of be a bit of a, um, I, I guess it's sort of entrepreneurial, but thinking about how people listen to sound was my main goal. What are they, what's the hook? What makes them care? What makes them want to actually stay with you for an hour and find out more? Um, so I was always navigating between performance art, improvisation, composition, performance, and trying to find this magical recipe. And don't ask me what that recipe is because I've never nailed it, but it's always my goal is to find out how to entice ears that have never heard this before to stay with me and to, to want more and to ask questions and to engage in um, ideas at the end of a concert. So Melbourne, uh, I spent a lot of time in China studying Chuanju, which is um, Sichuan opera percussion, which is another whole sort of chapter. And then I ended up uh, moving to Brisbane. So that's been my base for 18 years, but I've been traveling and um, yeah, exploring, commissioning works, playing works, doing the um, freelance lifestyle while holding down a full-time job, you know, and a family, you know how it is. Exactly. Yes. And I, I'm a little curious about that uh, that balance, you say, to make the, the audience listen. So I guess you have tried many different options in many different ways, but can you get a little into that? Yeah. I. So I think um, in my younger days, and I was kind of a little... I don't know, maybe precocious. So younger days means like when I was 16 or 17 and I was doing concerts and I was really hardcore. I wanted just to go for the pure music and I don't care if you like it. I just want to do this incredibly hardcore music. Um, and there was a particular scene in Adelaide that was into this energy and it's almost sort of punkish attitude to new music. And then I got into more subtle ideas and I was like, well, people come to these gigs from, I don't know, they've just had a shitty day or a fantastic day or they've been stuck in a traffic jam or, you know, they, they kind of need a moment of cleansing. Um, and listening to a lot of um, classical Indian music, they always have the alap, right, this moment where they just explore the raga and they just kind of tease out the acoustic of the space and they get everyone relaxed together and it's almost like that small talk at the beginning of a dinner party that sort of awkwardness before you get to the meeting subject mm. so I started you know experimenting with like sound installations at the beginning of a concert so um, people could kind of explore sound uh, themselves before they sat down um, uh, playing things from within the audience um, doing audience participation things, um, juxtaposing like, I don't know, a pop tune with a new music thing, with a jazz thing, just like just always asking a question, I guess. Um, and it's a bit about my restlessness, I think, as a, as a musician. My, my ideal is sitting down with 
I don't know, a tam-tam or a bass drum or bowing a cymbal for hours. That's my happiness. <laughs> but you can't just you can't just be happy, right? <laughs> you can't just go let's be happy. You have to kind of get into that state and allow that to um emerge and grow. So I guess I've been learning to, that's really how I learned to improvise, was learning to navigate between pieces and ideas so that I could introduce something to an audience so they could step forward with the composer, with me, with the other performers. So that in, um, I guess, in directing festivals and stuff, that that's always fascinated me, um, programming. And I was looking back at my dissertation recently from university in San Diego and it was just literally about that like I'm like I have not changed in 20 years 25 years um the same kind of things interest me I don't know if that's good or bad but it's it's kind of interesting to me and at least you have tried those things out in reality that you were doing in the in the dis dissertation I think that's seems like a very structured approach um, and what 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 has worked the best of all these different of course you can't know because you have no idea what is happening in the head of the audience but still maybe you have an an idea of what what went best in the moment yeah yeah i look it's it's never right and wrong if i if you're doing like john luther adams strange and sacred noise you can't really add an improv before it it's it's like it's already too um too complete a work but you might set up the space in a particular way so the audience can sit on the floor near you or can you might do an introduction that says hey look move around move around the space and try different things during the show I don't mind or if if you need to walk out for a bit just do that and come back I guess it's finding a way of making people feel comfortable and not that they're trapped. I, I I don't like, I don't know about you, but as a listener, feeling claustrophobic is one of my great fears. <laughs> you can't remove yourself from the situation without seeming to offend someone or seeming to, I don't, I don't know, there's sort of an etiquette that you can't mm. cross. I guess I'm trying to make sure that people feel safe And, and safety comes in all different forms, um, but safe to listen and safe not to listen. Have there been a significant break or change in your career? <laughs> yeah, there's been lots. Um, it's a It's a really good question. I remember a day when I had two young kids and um, I was doing a lot of gigs where I was an interpreter. So, you know, oh, can you play this composer's work? Can you do this thing? And I, I just felt like I was being, I don't know, rolled out a lot to do stuff and I was not happy. It was just a lot of work and a lot of preparation and uh, Yeah, I wasn't saying the things I wanted to say. And I remember, that's it, I'm quick. <laughs> Taking time off. Um, it was awesome to break a lot of relationships because you kind of get into habit. Um, over the years, you develop habits and it was good to break them. 
But then a friend of mine who didn't know that I'd quit um, called me and said, look, Vanessa, I'd like you to do this gig. And I'm like, yeah, uh, actually, I'm not really playing at the moment. He's like, but what I want you to do is just play whatever you want for an hour. Don't, don't play composer stuff. Just, just do your thing. And I was like, my thing, I don't, I don't have a thing, do I? Um, <laughs> he's like, no, no, you'll be fine. Just, just do your thing. And it was the most incredible invitation. It was when I first started getting obsessed with found objects. And I've got this practice now where I play a lot of things like rice bowls and tiles and uh, bottles that I just, I love the fact that they're pitched and yet not, they have a hierarchy, but not clear pitches is what I meant mm. to say. Um, I just, I just find it endlessly fascinating. And I became obsessed and I practiced this and I performed on this stuff and I performed for an hour on a tiny tray of instruments and it was the happiest hour of my life. And I was like, ah, that's what music can be. So I kind of had to quit to restart because the habits were too strong in, um, in what I was doing. I'm sure there's other, other moments in my um, career that have been like that. Um, I can't think of them right now, but I, I definitely try and every year have sort of a New Year's resolution, which is to try something new. Um, mm -hmm. so I don't get stuck where I am and that can be professionally like right now I've I've taken on directing a research institute um that's my something new and it just means I've got endless things I have to learn uh to do that job but other times that might be uh I'm only going to play vibraphone for the first two months of the year or something and I really mm. have to fall in love with something again um but that yeah that's how I I'm I'm very changeable in that way so you have some nice uh, January and Februarys always. <laughs> at, at least here in Denmark, it's a it's a good time of the year to get focused in something because you can't really go out, and it makes sense for that time. Um, yeah, so I I just remember if you if you want to to improve improve positive thinking then there's a, as, as a, an exercise that you write down every evening three things you did really well but also three things where you were really brave and where you break broke some of your habits and probably that's that's a main thing in 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 development that we have this eagerness to actually break up with with what is habitual in our in our working so it seems very feasible what you're doing there um yeah sorry that Related a lot to to teaching, of course, because you know, students come in thinking that they know how to be good, or they know how to be a hero, or they they know what's right and wrong. Let's say, and you know that really destabilizing learning process where you realize how little you know, and the more you find that out, the the less you know. Um, you know that's just such a it's such a joy after 18 years watching that process again and again and again and then seeing people finally find that they're on their journey, um, which is totally different from someone else. It's it's really remarkable. And percussion is so special in that because we um it's so non-singular. Yeah, we have we have to take some choices. I had the first two years of my academy uh, life, I was so sure I wanted to be a timpani player. And and I think that's 
very common that you have these very clear ideas and someone is totally open to everything but it, it seems like it's normal that you have a, a change at a certain point in your studies and that's what really makes it interesting as a teacher i totally agree um can you say a little bit a bit more about this research uh, institute yeah so um Uh, my university just set up the Creative Arts Research Institute, which brings together musicians, theatre makers, dancers, visual artists, designers, filmmakers and gamers all under the one umbrella. So my job is to, I, I, I guess, to forge interdisciplinary possibilities for everyone, mm. to get talking to each other, making research teams, um, It's it's totally fun because it's just like it's just like running a percussion department, <laughs> um, except it's for grown-ups. Uh, I hope they don't listen to this podcast. Um, it's um, it's kind of a chance to to work outside your discipline and extend your knowledge, um, and to develop empathy in other ways of seeing the world. So that to me is really strong. Um, I've always been interested in artistic research, so understanding the process of making, um, not just so I can be, I guess, better at what I do, but so I can understand the process of what I do. And it helps in teaching. It helps in, um, uh, uh, I guess, collaborating, working with people. Um, how, how do you define artistic research? Because that's something that is different from each country. <laughs> Um, I guess it's um, knowledge about the the doing process or thinking through the doing process. So instead of being outcome driven, it's process driven. Um, so instead of you know being on stage and having everything shiny and perfect, um, you're actually sort of unpacking how you make decisions and how those decisions change over time. Um, and decisions can be in relation to a score. That can be in relation to spaces and places, um, in relation to sort of different instruments, and that—that's how I define it. I don't know. How how, how how do you document it? Do you have any? I mean, of course, that's that's into the core of what artistic research is about. So, but but I think always it's it comes to a compromise when you have to to show this to other people or to make it clear what it, what is happening. Yeah, that's. So it's it's interesting, right? Because uh, knowing knowing is different from demonstrating that you know, and that that's the really tricky bit is like um, writing that down. So, I mean, I a lot of my stuff um, I work with a videographer, and they we we've known each other for a long time, and so um, they get impressions or views of my process. Um, that's that's one way. So making documentaries. Um, I write some, but not heaps, but I try and write on process sometimes. And I try and, you know, do as many different kinds of uh, presentations and conference -y things as possible just to get my thinking and understanding mm. of the process. Mm. Um, it's weird, though, because I spend a lot of time working with PhD students on this, and I reckon they're all much better at it than I am. Because it's it's become a it, it was not a process I went through as a doctoral student mm. um, in in such depth, and I still really want art to speak for itself. I don't think we have to 
value add all the mm, time. Mm. I know that I would love other people to have explained how they learn to work or how they go about thinking through a work. So it's kind of, it's this series of how-to guides, like how to be me playing this piece, which no one has to copy, but it just gives them insight into how decisions get made. Mm. Yeah, that makes Is sense. That yeah, it's, it's the thing is that it can be very academic, the approach. And if you can refer to other people in the way you're doing the academical work, it's, it kind of, then you're able to, to publish in a journal. And that's interesting in itself, maybe, but maybe you don't get exactly into the core of what your project is about. And I think I, I made also documentaries of my work. And I think that's a very direct way of communicating. Um, but it's far away from the kind of scientific approach. So we we have many, I think it, the, the right answer is probably if there's any right answer that we need to to communicate in many different channels um, because it's impossible to make people come inside your brain and inside your body and understand what you're actually doing. But yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about this, that it, we have a long history of percussion playing and art making in general where this was not the the a, a natural thing to do uh, which means that we cannot really refer to what the big masters what happened inside them and that would be very interesting if we could <laughs> so that's maybe i mean we have a lot of trouble trying to define this and researching it in different areas in in many different cultures and countries uh, but i think the main important thing is actually that we're doing it so that the next generations can have more insight and build on, upon this. Um, what do you think about critical reflection in this regard? And what do you mean by critical reflection? So to have this second order reflection where you're not just acting upon what, what you experience in the moment, but you are actually uh, examining your habits or going to, to a second level of, of awareness. Yeah. Look, um, so I certainly a lot of people I know go do that in particular projects. And um, there are two ways of thinking through this. One is that um, it wrecks the magic and one is that you can control the magic. Um, I, I definitely think that um, you can control the magic and there's always going to be another another layer that's deeper than the one you went to before. So there's always space for, um, for spontaneity to happen. I, I, I can't imagine. You can't overthink it, really. Mm. Mm. Um, and any performer knows when you go on stage, it's, it's another beast altogether. Like the whole temporal relationship between audience, your body, sound, everything is altered. And mm. no amount of critical reflection can uh can can completely annihilate that that sensation that's happening um but you can ask the wrong questions you can exactly, ask yeah questions of yourself <laughs> and that path it doesn't doesn't help anyone and how do you avoid doing that is a is a big thing i guess you said it before when like the things we wished we'd asked the masters, like that, that often comes up in my brain. Like, what do I wish I knew? Mm. Which do I want to ask of people that are not in a position to answer those questions anymore? You know, like, man, what kind of tin can were you using in that cage piece? 
Like there's, there's just some stuff I'd love to know, or did you really play those like polyrhythms? Right. I mean, they're hard and it's like, or how did you play those? Like, what was your approach? Um, Mm. There's things that we just don't know. And so I try and hold on to what I wish I knew and then try and put that inside projects. But yeah, it's, it's kind of self-aggrandizing, right? To think that anyone else is going to be interested in what I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what you're doing here is kind of artistic research. Like we're thinking together in real time through having a conversation. Yes. I reckon that in itself, like I, I'm, I'm going to learn stuff or I am learning stuff tonight. Um, and hopefully we learn stuff together and hopefully that learning then gets extrapolated out to someone in an audience that might go, ah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope for that. <laughs> I'm learning too. And that's also the beauty of making a podcast like this, that we have so many great artists in here and, and you actually, while you're doing it, you are, you are in a learning process and starts to think more about what, what can you ask and where does it lead? When, when you have this center for artistic research and your leading role in that, um, does it change the way you, you teach your students in the percussion department? It's a really, a really, really good question. Um, I think probably for the, uh, the last five years I've been coming, I've been becoming more and more interested in research reading more and more theory, thinking about, uh, thinking about um, music and art more than thinking about percussion. So my, my brain has been going into different places. And I think at first I tried to almost hide that from the percussion department because, you know, I have a job there, which is to make sure they know the fundamentals, to make sure that they can survive in the world as well-rounded humans with um with skills and um oh god it just did that again that's really annoying uh with more and more skills and i i feel like there's a responsibility to them to make sure that they are really grounded in what they want to get out of the degree but Then there was a few students who came along who started coming to, I don't know, talks I would do or um, other concerts that sort of, for me, seemed like they were outside percussion. And they asked me a lot of questions and then they would tell their friends in the department, then they'd all start coming. And I I realised that... Um, oh, it just cut out again. Um, I realised that they they really were interested in in what I was I was doing so I started I started bringing them much more along I started inviting them to play in my compositions or my projects and I think the first big thing I did like that was taking them up to a place called the piano mill which is a place in the bush um, about three hours from Brisbane 
And with my partner, Eric Griswold, we were making a piece for 20 percussionists called Vibrations in a Landscape. So I took my department, they were camping up there um, in some pretty horrendous Australian weather, um, running around playing, uh, you know, woodblocks and slapsticks and whistles. Um, there were people riding motorcycles through the performance. There was uh, fabric waving through the air. We were swinging speakers to get these beautiful Doppler effects. It was it was kind of this wild, crazy performance piece. But I realized how much they learned by doing that. It's not like they were learning to be um, to be fantastic percussionists at that point. They were just learning how to kind of be a musician, how to how to perform, how to how to keep track of a, a freeform score, how to take self-responsibility, how to work with other people, like all these other kind of skills, which I, I think I was just too paranoid that they weren't getting their paradiddles done, that <laughs> I, I forgot that these were also really important skills. So I was, com- I was overcompensating for what I thought might be a problem um, mm. from my perspective. And I realised there's a lot of in 1970 we're not teaching percussion in 1990 we're teaching percussion in 2022 now and what people need is um you know it's quite different i i think they they need to be able to be sustainable they need to have the skills to have sustainable careers and what that includes you know every one of us is going to do that differently right but we need to give them the confidence to feel like they can follow a pathway. So I guess what I'm saying in a very long way is that my research and my teaching have started informing each other much, much more. And I've I've really allowed that door to open instead mm. of keeping parts of myself separate. That's interesting. And do they, when they study in, in your department, are they studying orchestral percussion? Yeah, this is another big thing. They kind of are. So the curriculum says they're studying what is called um, percussion, but it sits under a program called classical. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So I refuse to call it classical percussion, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, it is um, percussion within the Western art music tradition. And um, uh, they all, we we approach it as if they're going to be orchestral percussionists, which, you know, I still believe gives a really, really firm foundation for understanding sound, technique, nuance, phrasing, um, oral skills, theory skills, all like all these things are embedded in that as long as we work really hard <laughs> as teachers. If mm. we're lazy at all, then all they get out of it is some rhythm training and wrist training or something like that. You know, they get a, a gym workout. Mm. But, uh, so I don't mind it being percussion within a classical music program, um, but you have to enhance it. Like, so hand drumming classes, jazz vibe classes, drum set classes, all those things have to be kind of available and put in there and, um yeah, made to sound enticing to the students. I guess the other thing is um, the the other way I get around it and map my, match my research and my um, teaching is through guest 
artists just trying to bring people through that inspire them. Um, we hosted Transplanted Roots about four years ago, I guess it was, yeah. in Brisbane. Really nice just to have a whole lot of new people come through. Um, I've hosted the Australian Percussion Gathering, which is a big, um, all of the students in Australia that are studying come together. And we've hosted that, I think, three times now in Brisbane, which is really really huge and exciting and the students love being the the host because they get to do all the they they know everything they yeah, know yeah. how to run the whole scene so that's that's really fun and lots of guest artists come through so I yeah <laughs> you can see I'm a bit defensive on that point right <laughs> I don't know how you think about it but I I just don't know where we belong Yes, I mean it's also when when you become a teacher in a in a, an academy, there's this curriculum that needs to be done, and I think when I studied with with Bernhard Wolf in the around the twenty uh, the millennium, uh, he said that that you should always have a good orchestral department. That's always the main thing, and then you can have the contemporary music and the art as a, as an extra part of it. And and I think he was right at that moment, but maybe it's changing now also to it. I mean, you can you can find very very good videos about how to play Porgy and Bess on the internet. <laughs> not that you should not teach it as a teacher, but but there are some things that is very different in the teaching now than it was ten years or twenty years ago. There's a much larger pool of knowledge that you can just access if you have the right guidance and you get into it. It's actually not that complicated and difficult. Um, what I picked up from what you just said is that you studied with Bernhard Wolf and I studied there in 1992, maybe 1993. I just went there for a year. Wow. To, so I, another thing in common. Just yes, yes. I think to be have some critical reflection on this podcast, we have to be sure that not everyone studied in Freiburg and San Diego. <laughs> but that's that's for the organizers side to to do something about. <laughs> Interesting. And how was it? Oh gosh. Um I learned a lot. But um, I was trying to decide at the time between studying in Freiburg and in San Diego. And I was, um, uh, yeah, I was very unsure. And I found um, uh, Freiburg really challenging. Um, I, I'd come from an orchestral position in Australia. I thought I knew how to play percussion. And then I went to Bernhard and he said, actually, you don't know how to play percussion. Let's begin again. Um, and that was a, you know, that's a big thing to do. And I, I think I owe him every bit of my technique. Um, and I, I got so much out of it. I was kind of lonely when I was there because I, I didn't speak German well. I didn't know that many people. So I practiced a lot and was really, that was great. I, I loved that whole process. But, um, and I loved all the, the new music ensemble stuff and that was great. The percussion class was great. Uh, but I think I, in the end, I went, I have to go for the freedom of the US. It, it suited my personality um, much more. But um, I, I, I think in my teaching, I use a lot of what I learned from Bernhard. Yeah, it was ground, ground basics that was really working. And, and also the whole approach to 
to how to think about art i think it was very inspiring at that at that time also for me in in my career um so what makes what makes you happy <laughs> you can't just make someone happy didn't we just talk about that? um <laughs> What makes me happy? Well, I, I think I mentioned before, if I could sit with my tam-tam and just play soft roles as a duet with the ocean, um, I'd be pretty happy. Um, I think what makes me happy is listening. Like what makes me happy as a percussionist is definitely listening. I just, I adore the fact that we can manipulate sound and filter out frequencies and amplify frequencies and uh, you know mess around with this weird idea called repetition not so much for me in rhythm but in um in frequencies and just building up building up and morphing and changing um sound that's that makes me really happy um uh I, I'm I'm thinking passively here, so um, you know I'm not thinking of my life goals when you ask what makes me happy. But um, I what makes me really happy is um, the sound of Chinese percussion. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talk when I was talking about frequencies, it's what reminded me. It's so high pitch, so many high frequencies. It's really distressing. Um, uh, all this you know small metal objects just being yeah. like really loudly and hard together with a high-pitched female singer right in the middle of it that makes me really happy it's just like a nutty sound that doesn't really exist in the west I love that out of controlness and the other part of it I love is that they have these sort of loping rhythms which are never square you can't you can't square them up it's like a um when I first went to Europe and saw old buildings and you know they're never square. Mm, yeah, <laughs> just tending, like you know, two degrees off. All rhythm in China is like that, and I just find that so satisfying. Um, and as a percussionist, it just makes me really happy <laughs> that rhythm is not square; that it loops. Um, yeah, so rhythms, high pitch frequencies, um, and. Uh, and lots of long durational sound. Mm. But when you say listening, it seems to me that you prefer also music where you have a, a long process to listen into. I mean, as a musician, you could also be listening while you're playing Mozart, but it seems to me that you prefer things where you have a, a, a slow going process or is that right understood? Yeah, no, that that is that is understood. I think that's like um, uh, I, it takes me a while to to understand our sound. <laughs> Mozart, there's too many sounds, man. That's a, that's a <laughs> lot. <laughs> <That's pretty good. laughs> like it just takes me a while to go. Oh wow, that's what that is. And you know, I could literally take the first note of a symphony and just let that be held for a really long time. Mm. And what's happening in that and then go on to the next one um but having said that i if you've heard any of my improvisations they are the exact opposite they are very sort of frenetic and fast and uh when i'm improvising i feel like my brain is just going really slowly and listening like i was explaining but mm-hmm. what i'm doing is the complete yeah. opposite <laughs> i don't know how you um improvise but it's yeah 
the the time scale is really it gets yeah. totally whack. I'm I'm sure yeah that there's a very different presence in the brain while I improvise that it's really like another world you're in and you don't know exactly what is happening but it's just present in a different way. It just it reminds me of uh, Heinrich Neuhaus, the old uh, Russian uh, piano teacher who who's, who explains how you should start out by playing one note at the piano and just listening all the way through the whole decay of that note. That is his kind of basic idea of how you learn to play the piano. And I think it's so beautiful because you really start out with listening for the sound of the instrument and all the qualities in that. So I I can really follow you in this uh, presence. And I would also love to sit just <laughs> for a long time with a tam-tam and exploring all those those beautiful sounds. Um, but I, I can also see when, when you, let's, if we go back to the first part of the interview, when you talked about meeting your audience, uh, of course, you need to do something very clear for them to grasp that now is the moment of beauty where you should actually immense and, and get into this. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, well, um, I, I think I mentioned something small at the beginning about, um, uh, almost preparing the space as well as preparing the listener. So, you know, if you come into a space and there's beanbags all over the floor and a tam-tam in the middle, then people kind of have a bit of a message that they can just chill out, right, and listen. So mm. that's one way of doing it. Um, actually, during, um, during COVID in 2020, um, there was a big festival that I was asked to play at, but it all had to be outdoors and socially distanced, et cetera. Um, and I was asked to play three concerts overlooking the city of Brisbane in these three different parks. And I chose to play Tam Tam um, at, those, at those concerts. And it was a solo Tam Tam piece. And it was kind of beautiful because the audience was sitting on a hill with me. We all had a view, but we also had all sorts of things happening. The sky was changing color. There were bicycles going past. There were people talking. There's birds. There was so much happening that the stillness of the tam-tam sort of became the anchor and everything else almost became the music. And it was just gorgeous. I, mm. I loved that tension. And, it, you know, I don't know that I would have been that patient with an audience because that was a very, very general audience, nothing to do with anyone who's ever heard a tam-tam before or, you know, knows much about contemporary practices. Um I don't think I would have had the confidence to do that if it wasn't during COVID and it wasn't this sort of special regathering and it became mm. a ritual, almost a ritualistic performance. Uh, it, was, it was amazing and people were, you know, crying at the end of this thing because just a shared experience, a shared stillness together that was mm. deep and connected and listening. It was It was about sound but it was also about, you know, humanity, I guess. Um, and I'm sure many people have had those experiences coming out of COVID that are just the, the need to listen together. 
is is quite profound. I I don't know. Have you had those experiences? Definitely, yeah, yeah. For the long time of a lockdown, and then suddenly you play concerts, and it's just like every musician and everyone in the audience are just so eager to listen and to be together and create the music in in that moment. I think it was it was really healthy to explore how how this works when you have had a pause like that for everyone. Uh, of course, it was also hard to just be at home and find new ways and endless Zoom meetings. And but I think really that that moment of opening up again was was very important and and beautiful. So I can and totally. We're we're like talking to each other, and you've started a podcast series, which probably well I don't know, but it may not have happened. That's true. You know, yeah, yeah. Different people in different ways without kind of the limitations we might have put on put on ourselves before yeah there's positives it seems like my, sorry yeah i was gonna say one of my favorite um covid concerts with with the mexican percussionist evaristo aguilar mm -hmm. i'm not sure if you know him from tampico and um he was collaborating with myself and eric griswold um the other half of clocked out and we were doing all kinds of um, uh, pre-recordings and sending them to each other and adding things, kind of like a um, exquisite corpse kind of idea where you you keep layering um, information on. And there was this one piece where we both collected every bit of junk, every bit of toy junk that we had in our houses and put them on a big table each. And we just scattered the sound, just crazily played these things and we videoed them from on on top and then the sound was put together with these little chickens in um in mexico that were eating seeds and i don't know it's just there's something about that video that is so joyous and so happy and absolutely impossible to have done because we would never have had those instruments and sources and and i was like wow this is this is like huge this is one of the most satisfying covid possibilities because it's impossible it, it was mm. an unusual kind of sound world and um anyway i can put a link to that um if oh yes yes and also coming to an end thank you very much for being here in the podcast vanessa it was a pleasure to talk to you pleasure to talk to you as well had a good day <laughs> thank you